Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown with Roe v. Wade overturned and the fight over access to abortion taking center stage in our national politics, we're joined by a leading historian on the fight for and against legalized abortion. That's right. Mary Ziegler teaches at UC Davis Law School. Her latest book, Roe, The History of a National Obsession, chronicles the legal, cultural, and political landscape of abortion from the days when it was criminalized to now when the battle at the U.S. Supreme Court has shifted to access to abortion pills. But first, Scott, um, lots happening in Sacramento this week, a big bill deadline coming up on Friday. I was watching yesterday the local government committee uh, where they were discussing... As one does. Yes, as one does. (laughs) Where they were discussing the proliferation of Inland Empire warehouses. I know you've spent a lot of time down in Palm Springs of late. Have you noticed this at all? Well, you know, the thing you notice and can't avoid noticing is all of the huge trucks that are on the I-10 and the 215. And what those uh, trucks are, of course, is they're taking goods from the ports of L.A. and Long Beach to these warehouses or from the warehouses to wherever it is we, you know, Amazon delivers them from, you know. And, and so, yeah, it's it's quite amazing to see it. Uh, and, of course, if you live down there, you're affected by the traffic and the pollution. And uh, that's a big issue right now. Yeah, I mean, I went down and I uh, spent some time with some neighbors in Riverside, the city of Riverside, where uh, they are um, planning to build another six or so warehouses, some of these over a million square feet uh, on this land that used to be an Air Force base, uh, right abutting, you know, neighborhoods, homes. There's a lot of concern about, to your point, the trucks, the particulate matter, all of that idling on city streets as they come in and out. Um, And there were two competing pieces of legislation to kind of not stop the building of warehouses, (laughs) but... you know, to uh, put some setbacks so they couldn't be quite as close to sensitive sites like schools and homes. Uh, The more ambitious of those those bills, the one that scientists tell me would actually make a potential difference, um, was held in committee. Um, Another one uh, was put forward. That one only put about a 350-foot setback, which is really... I mean, I don't think most of these are built like that close anyway. So I think it'll be interesting. What I heard from those committee members was a lot of desire for those two uh, members, James Ramos and Eloise Reyes, both assembly members from the Inland Empire, to come together and try to work on a compromise. Um, And, you know, this is one of those bills where it's like, oh, environmental justice. You would think that Democrats would be kind of on the side of neighbors, but on the other side are labor unions, very big, powerful labor unions, all the chambers of commerce. Um, And so there didn't seem to be, even in the more progressive members of that committee, 
a lot of desire to step in uh, and support the Reyes bill with the bigger setback or to really take on some of these groups. And I also heard this interesting refrain about like, we don't want to usurp local government, which I say is interesting because it seems like the legislature is happy to do that when it comes to cannabis setbacks or forcing some cities to build housing, right? <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, also this is, you mentioned environmental justice. There's also economic justice. And this is an area that uh, was hit really badly, the Inland Empire, by the mortgage meltdown. Over a decade ago, lost a lot of people lost their homes, a lot of jobs were lost, and you know there's like over one and a half million jobs just in the warehouses alone. There's a huge number, like four thousand warehouses already down there, and so yeah, you know. For- like a, a billion square feet. I mean, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a lot. It's hard to imagine, you know? And so, yeah, as you said, you've got people who are really concerned about union jobs supporting the construction of these warehouses. And there were some interesting arguments against, you know, the setbacks. One, that the science based on kind of old science, that the, you know, air regulation is tougher now, the, right. the trucks are cleaner, um, and that the trucks, even if you don't have the warehouses there, you're going to have the trucks there anyway because they're going to be going right. further out yeah. where the warehouses end up. Yeah, and on the other hand, I think that, you know, I talk to a scientist who studied this she says yes the trucks are cleaner but there's so many more of them that it's actually still increased pollution in that area um, and you know I think that there is a question of are these the jobs that the Inland Empire wants and needs you know Reyes the assembly member and others have said look these are low-paying often seasonal jobs with automation where will there be warehouse jobs in 10 years so you know I, I think that there's a lot of complication here um, and it's going to continue to be a debate not just there but we're seeing this happen now out in Stockton and you know closer to the Bay Area yeah it's a all lot driven of by consumer demand too I mean people right. you know you see what's happening with retail malls they're dying because people aren't going out getting into their cars yeah. and going shopping they want things delivered to their house it's you know and, and that's of course what's driving a lot of this right. as well all right before we take a break Scott another uh, big but not surprising announcement this week from uh, President Biden he wait for it he's running for re-election what and uh vice president kamal harris is running alongside him once again she figures prominently in this video um you know it's 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 interesting because if you look at polling a lot of folks say they don't actually want biden to run including democrats but then if you look at the electoral math i think democrats feel real good about this they do and you know i think it all is contingent uh, i think upon donald trump getting the nomination because obviously a lot of these uh you know kind of independent moderate republicans there are some of those left uh swing voters uh might be very they might not be thrilled with biden but they really don't want donald trump to get into the into office for another four years. So, you know, we're already seeing California and San Francisco being the target of a lot of the anti-Biden ads. That's sure to continue. But, you know, I think this is going to be a real test for Kamala Harris. And in some ways, I feel like she might be underestimated. Um, You know, the press has been very negative about her. Some of that is earned. But I do feel at the same time, like she's, you know, I think that her presence on the ticket is going to matter a lot more given Biden's age than it would for a typical vice presidential candidate. And it is interesting because it's just like, if you look at just his record, he's actually been very progressive. I mean, I think any other president but for his age on the Democratic side would be running on a very strong kind of reelection campaign. This is about his age. He's already starting to acknowledge it and talk about it. And he's going to have to because people are worried. Well, and I think a lot of Democrats are going to be holding their breath. You know, if he falls down the stairs getting off Air Force One or falls off his bike, I mean, it's going to just fuel that narrative. And, uh, you know, he's actually in pretty good shape for an old 
old guy. Uh, and yeah, you're right. He's got a great record to run on. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it all unfolds. They can just the play, play the video of him in Ukraine over and over again. Um, all right. Before we go to break, Scott, I know we're not ready to think about the next gubernatorial election, but some candidates are. We heard this week. Eleni Kunalakis, lieutenant governor, as well as Betty Yee, former Board of Equalization member and former treasurer, right, uh, are both no, running. I think she was running. She had a treasurer committee. She ran committee. for treasurer, sorry. Uh, both say they're going to run in 2026. Um, so keep an eye on that. I am sure they will not be alone on that ballot. No, and it'd be nice. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would like to have a woman governor. We've never had Absolutely. one of those in California. All right. Lots to watch. We are going to take a short break here. When we come back, we'll be joined by UC Davis law professor Mary Ziegler. Her latest book about abortion is called Roe, the History of a National Obsession. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we are being joined by a woman who is one of the nation's foremost experts on the history of the abortion wars. Mary Ziegler teaches at UC Davis Law School where she studies the history of abortion law in the U.S. from before Roe v. Wade when abortion was illegal to the Supreme Court declaring it a constitutional right in 1973 and up to today where the Dobbs decision left abortion up to the states. Her latest book, Roe, the History of a National Obsession, is out. Mary Ziegler, welcome. Welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. So, as we said, you're a historian, so let's talk about the history here. Um, I feel like this must be one of the oldest medical procedures in the book. Can you just talk a little bit about when it became controversial in the U.S.? Um, You say that we started kind of criminalizing it in the late 19th century. Why was that? It was actually a a kind of an elite movement of doctors, right? So white, male, Protestant, fairly well-to-do doctors. Um, who I think had a variety of reasons that they didn't like abortion. Um, I think they thought that abortion was primarily being provided by midwives, Mm. people who were their professional competitors. I think they thought that life began at fertilization of an egg, not at quickening, which had been the standard both in law and culture. They thought essentially that they as experts knew better. And I think they thought that abortion was a sign that uh, American women were kind of abandoning their natural role, right? So mm. Horatio Storer, who was this Harvard-educated Boston Brahmin leading movement, essentially said, you know, women were not meant to have sex without reproducing, and that's why they had um, ovaries. 
and uteruses. If God had not intended them to have a potentially unlimited amount of children, he wouldn't have given them uteruses and ovaries. So those were the kinds of ideas that were animating this movement, and they spread pretty quickly. You went from a situation where um, very few states criminalized abortion throughout pregnancy uh, to, by the end of the 19th century, that being a pretty firm majority. How would you describe how the arguments for and against abortion have evolved, you know, over the years, over this you know, century, really? Uh, you know, it seems like obviously today it's framed uh, on the pro-choice side as women's, uh, you know, women's right to define their own bodies and, you know, make their own decisions. But how, how is the fight against abortion? How have those arguments shifted, if at all? They have. So by the time you get to the 1960s, the anti-abortion movement is not um, arguing as much about policy as it is about the Constitution. So from that point on, the anti-abortion movement is what we would now call a fetal personhood movement. So the argument is not just that abortion is immoral, but that it's actually unconstitutional to allow abortion, because the word person in the Constitution, they argue, applies from the moment an egg is fertilized. And that means that having an abortion under some circumstances denies equality or due process to this fetal person. Um, and that's, that has been a kind of through line for the movement from the 1960s to the present, even though the movement's arguments have changed a lot, in part because at various points it was pretty clear that most Americans didn't believe these arguments about fetal personhood, that the Supreme Court wasn't going to go for these arguments about fetal personhood. And so at various points the movement developed other claims that they thought members thought would work. Like, for example, um, arguing that taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for abortion. Mm -hmm. If, if it was against their conscience in the 70s, or arguing that abortion was bad for minors and that it was an issue of parental rights, or arguing that it actually turned out that abortion hurt women and other pregnant people by causing various things they claim to be true, like an increased risk of breast cancer or something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So um, there have been a kind of, uh, the arguments have always changed uh, but the, the, what the movement actually wants has not, and that's becoming a little clearer in this post-Dobbs era, I think in part because people in the anti-abortion movement believe that there's no real risk that they're going to lose the support of the Republican Party, or really that they're going to lose in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So given that that calculus has changed, you're starting to see, I think, a more open discussion of what this is actually about, um, which was very much not the case from, I would say, like the mid to late 1970s through maybe 2018. Yeah, I wonder when you like step back and look at this from a 30,000 foot view, not just the last 40 years of debate, but the last hundreds of years. I mean, how much of it do you see as a moral argument and how much of it do you see as about controlling women and their bodies? It's hard really to separate, right? Because on the one hand, if you spend a lot of time studying people who oppose abortion, it's clear that they they think, you know, they're when they're talking, they're really actually obsessed with this idea of fetal personhood, right? So it does not come across as they actually don't care about fetal personhood and this is about controlling women. But then when they talk about what fetal personhood means, that often has a lot to do with ideas about when people should have sex and what equality for women means and what motherhood is. And so I think on the one hand, it really matters to take people you disagree with seriously and listen to them. And, you know, I think this is a case where it's not just a strategy, but I think at the same time, when you do take it seriously, you see that there's a lot here about, and not, I think not just controlling women, but just changing what we mean by equality altogether. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Throughout time, you see the movement saying things like, 
You know what? It really isn't super important whether you're in a group that suffered a history of subordination. Like that's not really what equality is about. It's about physical vulnerability. And then at other points, you say the movement saying things like, you know, what really matters is not the wrongs of the past. It's sort of restoring the traditions and history that essentially we got it right at the, in the founding era when, of course, I would think lots of things are wrong, but that it's about honoring history and tradition as opposed mm. to rectifying the wrongs of the past. And when you when you hear language like that, you realize, of course, that would have implications for women and pregnant people, but would have implications for a lot of other people, too, of course, right? It would have implications for people of color. It would have implications for IQ people. It might have implications for disabilities like it's a much broader vision for what law ought to do um and obviously the people on the front lines of that are, are women and pregnant people but it would potentially change things for a lot of other people too if you're just joining us you're listening to political breakdown from kqed public radio i'm scott schaefer here with marisa lagos we're talking today with mary ziegler she's a professor at uc davis law school where she spends much of her time studying the history of abortion law in the u.s her latest book is titled roe the history of a national obsession. You've said, I've heard you say, and you write that Roe has really, really set the table for the Dobbs decision, which came down uh, and struck, you know, striking down Roe and, you know, creating a, a huge furor uh, in so many different ways. How, how do you see the, the decision in 1973, which was a seven to two decision, uh, setting, you know, laying that out and making what happened with Dobbs almost inevitable? Well, I, I mean, I think in a way, obviously, the, there were weaknesses in the Roe decision that other people have written about. Um, but I think, you know, the, the story of how Roe got overturned is really a, a political story, because one of the things that's pretty clear if you study the history of this even casually is that the arguments that Dobbs makes about why Roe is wrong were present, you know, in the dissent in Roe. They were being made in 1973, right? So it's not as if somebody came up with this devastatingly brilliant new argument that no one had thought of before. It was in part that the anti-abortion movement um, learned really powerful lessons about who controls the levers of power in the United States, right, and how that happens. So not just the idea that you need to control who sits on the Supreme Court, but you need to figure out how to influence the Republican Party more, how to influence campaign finance more, how to influence access to the ballot more. And so in some ways, I think Roe, the decision being weak, made it easier um, for justices who were so inclined to get rid of Roe. But I think their actually actual ability and willingness to get rid of Roe stem from these broader political changes. And it's, it's really something that stands out in the history that this is not, I think, yes, this is an issue primarily for women and people who can get pregnant, but it's more than that because these changes affected everybody else too, right? The anti-abortion movement was at the forefront of the Citizens United litigation, for example, right? When you think about campaign finance, um, has been at the forefront of litigation on things like voter ID or limiting mail-in balloting. And so these issues that affect people who never could get pregnant, never want to get pregnant, don't really even care about issues relating to pregnancy, like all of them are getting impacted by this in really major ways. Um, and, and that's continuing to this day. Well, and my understanding, too, is that some of this really came about because evangelicals, you know, in the 70s who were really worried about racial desegregation saw this as a more palatable political issue. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that, you know, came to be, but also like where it's landed now, because it seems like watching this movement I mean, they've played the long game, right? This has been a multi-decades long 
approach through a lot, you know, elections, legal strategies and other things bringing us to now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the role of evangelicals is really interesting because now um, if you look at polling, there were actually polls released yesterday by both um, NPR, PBS uh, and Marist on the one hand and Pew on the other hand, both of which captured that by far the group with the the strongest opposition to abortion is white evangelical Protestants. But the movement was historically the anti-abortion movement, a Catholic movement. And that began to change in the late 70s. And it was both, I think, that abortion was a more politically palatable thing to talk about, um, which was something that Republican operatives recognized and televangelists recognized. Um, It was also that some evangelicals, I think, were instinctually uncomfortable with abortion. But I think even more than that, it was something that you could theoretically do something about, right? Other issues that were upsetting to white evangelicals at the time were things like the existence of people who were queer or the fact that no-fault divorce existed. And there was no real prospect at the time. You know, you couldn't make queer people stop existing. You couldn't really unravel no-fault divorce because there was no interest in doing that. And so in theory, abortion was something where you could have Republican operatives and religious right leaders saying, look, this is a decision we can overrule. Like, this is something we can fix. Mm. So that was a tremendous rallying point. Mm. Um, And it's been, I think it's been that way ever since. And it's been really consequential, right? Because transforming the anti-abortion movement from a predominantly Catholic to a predominantly evangelical movement um, has changed the kind of geographical center of the movement. So now if, you know, listeners are thinking, okay, what is an anti-abortion state? The first thing that's probably popping in your mind is like Alabama, Mississippi, something like that, right? If I had asked you this question in 1968, you would have said Pennsylvania, right? You would have said a state that was not that red, that would have likely had a somewhat better social safety net for low-income people and for pregnant people. So now you have a kind of double whammy where the states that are the most opposed to abortion are also the states with, I think, the deepest commitments to incarceration, the states with the most troubling history of racism, the states with the weakest social safety nets, the worst maternal health outcomes, um, the highest rates of things like child poverty and infant mortality. And so that's making the effects of today's abortion bans, I think, even harsher than what we would have seen in the pre-Row era. And now with the Dobbs decision, of course, it's been left up to the states. And it's really also shifted attention to medical uh, abortion, uh, medication abortion, with mifepristone now being the center of attention. Now, that was approved by the FDA, you know, more than 20 years ago. Why now? Why do you think previous Republican presidents didn't try to restrict access to mifepristone? And like, where do you see this going? Well, the the why now is twofold, right? I mean, first of all, it it was now and then. One of the reasons this litigation is so striking is that most of the arguments you're hearing in court and in the media about mifepristone were not just made in 2000. They were made in 2010 and they were made in 2012. And they were honestly made in 1988 and 1992 and 1994. So these are arguments that the FDA has seen over and over again and in parsing the scientific evidence carefully has found to be wanting. Um, So the why now I think has more to do with who's on the US Supreme Court. So there's a belief, I think, probably actually a mistaken belief that this US Supreme Court will sign off on any bid to limit access to abortion, no matter what it is, no matter if the plaintiffs don't have standing to sue, no matter how long ago the statute of limitations might have run out. Um, and I think that's that's really what this suit reflects. The other reason I think this is happening now is because there's more urgency on the anti-abortion side. We now know that more than half of abortions in the United States take place via pill. Uh, and so that's important from that standpoint. It's important, of course, because if you have an abortion ban in your state, 
It's virtually impossible to enforce that ban if people can get abortion pills in the mail or from other states like California. And I think it's also an attempt to get the court uh, not only to second guess the FDA's authority, but to use this 19th century anti-vice law as a vehicle for a national ban. The statute's called the Comstock Act. No one's really thought about it in probably 50 years. It was originally designed to ban the mailing of things like what were considered dirty books, like the Canterbury Tales or Leaves of Grass. <laughs> um, it, it also, of course, barred the mailing or receipt of contraception or abortion in the mail. And anti-abortion groups know, right, that there's no chance that Congress, no matter who controls Congress, is going to pass a nationwide no exceptions ban on abortion. Uh, and they know the U.S. Supreme Court is probably not going to say abortion is unconstitutional anytime soon. So the only way to get to a national ban is to sort of revive this zombie law. So this lawsuit is one of several that's trying to get the Supreme Court to say, one, Comstock means there's a national ban. And then step two of this strategy would be to get a Republican president who would say, I'm going to enforce Comstock against people mailing abortion pills to California or doctors in California or anyone in California. Right. So and, I think it's 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 a Hail Mary in that way as well. Well, they're also trying to use it like in Texas to prevent, you know, people from traveling for abortions. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. which is pretty wild. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, we've also seen, though, a real shift in support for abortion. I mean, there, there's always been support um, for access, but I think since Dobbs was overturned, the polls have become even stronger on the, the support side. Uh, we've seen elections in states like Kansas, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, do you feel like, yeah, Dobbs is changing the dynamics politically? And, and what does that mean for both sides of this debate? I do. I mean, I think that generally, if you're trying to kind of think about what does American public opinion on abortion look like. It's been fairly stable in a few ways and very changeable in others. So Americans hate bans on abortion and they have for a really long time. And then if you give them sort of like incremental restrictions, like, oh, you have to have a waiting period or you have to hear this information or that sort of thing, then opinion is much more divided. Um, and once you get into kind of middle-aged older folks, they may actually be in favor of those incremental restrictions. Hmm. But I think what Dobbs has done is two things. One, it's shown that what the anti abortion movement wants is bans, right? Incremental restrictions were never the point. They were just a rhetorical means to an end. And it's shown people that bans in the real world are pretty scary. So one of the most striking things in some of the polling released yesterday by both Pew and PBS slash Marist slash NPR was that there was usually deepest opposition in states that had restrictions already. Hmm. So people that were living in places where you couldn't get an abortion were saying, wow, I don't like this. I, I am not in favor of these restrictions. And that's kind of counterintuitive, right? But it was easier to get people in places like California where there wouldn't be any restrictions to say, yeah, you know, theoretically, I could be in favor of this limit or that limit because they didn't have to worry about it. But people who were actually experiencing this in the real world started to have real qualms mm -hmm. even more than they had before. And so I think because Dobbs has made this the reality for large swaths of the country, that's moving more people into the anti-ban camp because they're learning you know, when this is no longer just a hypothetical question, what it means, not just for people who are seeking abortion, but for people who are having miscarriages, people who are having stillbirths, right. people who are having other pregnancy complications who are learning that they don't yeah. have access to the care they need. And of course, if this Comstock strategy works, that would be yep. an even bigger use universe of people, right? Because what is it? It literally applies to any drug intended or adapted or device intended or adapted for abortion. And if you stop and think about that, is that like 
you know, Advil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost at the end. We're almost at the end of our time, but I want to jump in with a quick question about 2024, because now this, Mm -hmm. the Republicans are a little bit like the dog that caught the car. Uh, and, and I'm wondering how you see, how much room do you see for, you know, sort of, um, nuanced positions around things like mifepristone and medical abortion, medication, abortion. I mean, where, where, how do you see this playing out based on what, you know, based on history? It's hard to say. I think Republicans are caught between a rock and a hard place because if they try to move to the center, they're going to worry about primary opponents calling them weak on abortion. They're going to worry about losing anti-abortion donors. But on the other hand, if they go where the anti-abortion movement wants them to go, um, they're going to be hurt in a general election. Um, I think that they're in an even worse spot because both the federal courts and state legislators don't have to worry about any of that. And so they can keep pushing the agenda further and further to the right to places that the National Republican Party doesn't want it to go. Um, I think, it, again, you know, as you were saying earlier in the show, a lot will depend on who the Republican nominee is. But I think if it's Donald Trump, he may be able to move further from the anti-abortion movement because of his track record, um, and also because he just doesn't seem to care what a lot of people in the Republican Party think. Um, but you're seeing a lot of other Republicans who are, you know, jockeying for that role, like Ron DeSantis, having to move further and further and further to the right because they're more afraid of being primary than they are of the fact that the majority of the American people don't want these kinds of bans. Well, and I guess we'll see how that plays out since he just signed that six-week ban, which is Almost a full abortion ban right in Florida. We've been talking with Mary Ziegler. She is a abortion historian at UC Davis and has a book, Row the History of a National Obsession. Mary, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Before we let you go, if you're in the Bay Area, please join us on Tuesday, May 9th for a live political breakdown with the one and only Willie Brown. And also this weekend, uh, you can join KQED Fest if you'd like. There's going to be a lot of fun things happening. Uh, We're going to have a conversation called Dragged into Politics with Drag Queen Sister Roma. More information, and you can register at kqed.org. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal, Guy Marzarati, and Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez are our producers. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. See you next time. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.com. 
org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.